I need to read it over again for all of our benefits. Listen up. Oh God, You are my God. Earnestly I look for You and my soul thirsts for You. My flesh faints for You as in a day, a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon You in the sanctuary beholding Your power and glory because Your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise You. So I will bless You as long as I live. In Your name I will lift up my hands. Do you feel David's fervor in this psalm? Do you, do you relate to his sentiment, to his earnestness in his, in his words? Verse 5, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise You with joyful lips. When I remember You upon my bed and meditate on You in the watches of the night, for You have been my help, and in the shadow of Your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings for You. Your right hand upholds me. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word. I have something to say to you. This is one of the many of David's psalms. And I want to read something about the psalmist. I'm sure we all know it, but I want to get it right in the context, which is, you don't have to turn to it, First Samuel chapter 13, and this is how it reads. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which He commanded you. For now would the Lord have established you in your kingdom upon Israel forever. Verse 14, But now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought him a man after his own heart. A man after God's own heart. When Saul is first depicted in the book of Samuel, do you remember what the first scene was of It's not Samuel, Saul, the first king to be of Israel. The first scene is that he's looking for lost sheep. The first thing we find about David is that he is a keeper of sheep. Jesus is just the opposite of Saul. Can't find the lost sheep. Jesus describes Himself, the King of kings, in the final, last King of glory, says, the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Aren't you glad that a king has come into the world and has sought out lost people like you and like me? Do you realize that you were ever lost at one time? All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That is our nature. That's what we were were before Christ came into our life. And why is it that He came into our life? Because He sought us out. And God was looking for a man to take the place of Saul who would be described by him as a man after God's own heart. The Psalms we often think are written all by David. We call them the Psalms of David sometimes mistakenly. Not all the Psalms are written by David. And I think most of us here would know that there are multiple authors of all of the Psalms. 
but David by far exceeds all of them in the numbers of Psalms that he has written. David is named as the author of 75 of the Psalms. He, he is specifically noted as the author of 73 of them in the titles of the Psalms. Two of them are referred to in the book of Acts as giving to David credit for writing that psalm, which indicates we wouldn't have known who the author of that psalm was if it wasn't for the light of the New Testament telling us that. Which may indicate that some of the psalms that we don't know who the author of could possibly have been David. And not that it really matters in a sense, does it? But it is interesting, I think. The books that, of the psalms that David wrote are... Psalm 3 to 9, 11 to 32, 34 to 41, 51 to 65, 68 to 70, 86 to 101, 103, 108 to 110, and I could go on and on. It totals a number of 75. Often many of those Psalms are written with a background, a situation in David's life, just like we all have situations in our life. David was telling us about his life map journey and what things were like in his earlier years, in his middle years, his latter years, and right up to today. We all are journeying and we have had lots of experiences in our lives. And I think many of us can reflect on some of those experiences and say, those were good times. Those were meditative times. Those were times that I needed in my life to draw me closer to the Lord. What does the word Psalms mean? It means what? Songs. Songs accompanied with a musical instrument. The Psalms contain instructions on orchestration, which tune to use, the tempo. It has performance markings, such as pauses, breathe marks, in use of crescendo and descendo modulations. There are lots of technical terms in the superscriptions that we don't even fully understand. The word silah, S-E-L-H. If you're a psalm reader, hopefully you have come across this many times. 71 various times in 39 psalms, the word silah appears. What does that mean? There is uncertainty. Some of the suggestions have been that it's a musical interlude for a particular purpose, to possibly repeat a line. Also, it could likely mean one that I kind of prefer. It could be understood to mean stop, pause, and meditate. Something that we're not commonly used to doing, are we? Meditating, pausing, thinking. I'm impressed with David, and that's why I want to talk to you about him today and in the days to come in this particular psalm. Psalms instructs us on the best way to praise and thank God. How many of you utilize the book of Psalms? Some of you probably read it every day. Praise God for that. I hope you're reading other books besides Psalms. Some people feel the most comfort in the book of Psalms and that's almost the whole Bible to them. I would say shame on them. Get the whole counsel of God in all of the Word. But there is extreme value in the Psalms. Listen to some of the qualities of the book of Psalms. Uh, it's a model way to grieve and to address God boldly 
and directly in the midst of pain and sorrow. It provides language to help believers to express their own deepest emotions and passions. It's primarily human words to or about God. Rather than, like many other books of the Bible, it's not God's words to us, but it's rather our words to God. A hundred of the Psalms have titles of authorship. The overall message of the, of the Psalms, we would say, would be to praise God, which is the desired mode in which all should live. Are we living a life like that of praising to God? The Psalms teach us to sing, to dance, to rejoice, to give thanks. It doesn't stop there though, but let's pause for a moment on that. To sing, to dance, to rejoice, and give thanks. It sounds like a very flamboyant lifestyle that one would be living in the book of Psalms would be what is generating what is in the inward parts of us that creates this joy, this rejoicing, this upliftedness that we should be feeling even under the most dire of circumstances. And when we go through the life of David in the days ahead, we're going to see it wasn't an easy path. And yet he's still able to write 75 plus psalms and to express the deepest emotions and oftentimes with the highest of praise? That should be a challenge to all of us. A man after God's own heart. That's a great challenge to us. A woman, a boy, a girl, a man, whoever, after God's own heart. That's who God is seeking for. It's been said, and I, I don't put any stock in it, but I'll say it anyway because I think it's very edifying. Someone has said, or it's been evaluated, uh, that if you take all of the verses of the Bible and you look at the very middle verse of all of the Bible, it comes to Psalm 118, verse 8, that says, It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in men. That's worthy of being considered the middle verse of the Bible for some good reasons, I'm sure. Psalms is the heartbeat of the Bible. It's the magnet book that draws even unbelievers into it. It's the most popular book for worship services as well as funerals. Jesus used it Himself for singing. We get that in the Gospel of Mark before going to Gethsemane. Do we utilize the book of Psalms as much as we, we should? I know there are some churches out there that are called strictly psalm singing churches. That's all they sing is psalms. Which means they can't go wrong. They got the inspired words of God in every lyric, so there's no question about the validity of what's being sung. The problem is it's very difficult to sing some of them congregationally and to sound good at the same time. Nevertheless, it is a vital book. It's the song, song book for the Old Testament temple worship as well as it's utilized 
in the New Testament as well. We get that particularly in 1 Corinthians 14, Colossians 3, Ephesians 5, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's what we should be engaged in. That, these books should be a part of our life. They should be ingrained in our being so that the breathings of the book of Psalms becomes a part of us as well. It's the touchstone for all circumstances of life. Much more could be said about the book of Psalms. I was reading an article and it just so happened to correspond with where I was going this week in my thinking, as you probably hopefully know, that the series on journeying through the New Testament ended the last time I spoke. Where I was going to go, I was prayerful and thoughtful about where best to go now. I'd like to start with Psalm 63. I'd like to think about David as a sweet psalmist of Israel and how we can profit from not only the life of David, but the Psalms of David. And we'll be hearing more about that in the days to come. But let me read to you uh, an article that I was reading by Mark Galley in uh, Christianity Today, a magazine that I get uh, for some profit to me oftentimes. And this is one of the examples that was just right on the money for me. And in this article, he quotes, uh, again, another psalmist, not David. David is not the only one that is full with praise in, in the book of Psalms. Listen to Psalm 42. We should all know this verse. As the deer pants after the water brook, so panteth my heart after thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. We have all heard of the Sermon on the Mount. In the blessings of those beatitudes in how similar what we just read to what Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. The psalmist says, as the deer pants after the water brook, so panteth my heart after thee, O God. My soul thirsts for the living God. Listen up to what he has to say in this article. The psalmists were driven by a desire to know God, not just to do His will. Not just to be wise of righteousness, but to know God, to be with God, to bask in His presence. Persons of stoic nature. How many of you have stoic out there? I think a lot of hands would go up if you evaluated yourself. And that's not a negative. I'm just saying that that's how we're wired. And the author himself confesses his own stoicism, which means rather rigid, rather unemotional, sort of calm, even keel, just the opposite of me. Uh, just uh, that's how he is. And he goes on to say this. He says, uh, they're tempted, that, that is a stoic, character type person is tempted to assume that such passions by David and other psalm writers is only for the highly emotional personalities. Frankly, at times, David and other psalmists seem like emotional wrecks. Either lamenting their sorry state or begging desperately for divine aid, or longing passionately for God. 
my instinct is to tell them, chill out. Right? The Stoic says, come on, man, get over it. You're too intense about it. Lighten up. That's sort of our attitude sometimes. The fact is that over-the-top passion to know and love God is found so often in Scripture that it makes me doubt my stoicism, or I could even say my salvation. We see it also in Isaiah the prophet. He says, my soul yearns for you in the night. In the morning, my spirit longs for you, Isaiah 26.9. The Apostle Paul says, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with Him, Philippians 3. And we see it in Jesus' life and ministry. Not in yearning to be one with God, that would be absurd for the one to whom God fully dwell, but in His teaching, especially in what He said was the greatest commandment, which is what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That pretty much covers what? The emotional, the physical, the spiritual, the mental landscape of human life. To put it in another way, Jesus tells us we are to be monomaniacs for God. Meaning, emotionally ecstatic for God. Is that true of us? Of me? Am I ecstatic about God? I mean, this is baseline Christianity. This is baseline salvation. We are known as being what? Lovers of God. Let me read on. People, me the author says, who strive to keep emotions in check, to navigate life on an even keel, to take things in stride, try to squirm out of this by saying that this first and greatest commandment is merely about obeying God's commandments. And he goes on to talk about people excuse themselves by saying, well, I love God by loving my neighbor. And his point is simply this. There's definitely a distinction between... They relate, no doubt. But there's a, a clear distinction between the two. So that you can't... Which is commonly done, say, I love my neighbor and that's the way in which I love God. That can become an excuse for turning the focus away from Him and giving it all to your neighbor's. There is something extraordinary about the love of God. We're commanded to love God with the complete range of emotion, with the full measure of spiritual fervor, with unending intellectual effort, and with every calorie of energy. Wow. I've got to read on. I mean, this is rich. I hope you're being blessed by it. I was. I read it like three different times over and over. I said, wow, this is... Good stuff, man. This is great. I really need this, and I hope you feel the same way. Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh, Jesus' words, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Now, that's a startling comment. That sounds, at first, to be cannibalistic. But this is a shocking statement that Jesus makes to get the attention of His hearers of what He should mean to them. And He uses this metaphor that's over the top to get His point across. 
It is a violent, frankly, cannibalistic illusion meant to shock them into a deeper reality. The intense and personal nature of our union with God. As much as food and drink nourish and sustain us and become part of our bodies, so Jesus is needed to sustain, nurture, and become one with us. And if we want such an intimate and life-sustaining union, we will hunger and thirst for this like nothing else. Most of us, in reading such words, live, and this is so true of us Americans, live in lands of abundance. So the biblical metaphors don't quite register with us. The Bible almost seems too remote. It seems like too otherworldly or like another part of the globe. Not for me in America. Wow. We need to, we need to do some checking up on this. Our pangs of hunger needn't last but a few minutes here in America. With, within reach, we have the refrigerator or a store of vending machines. All of this to nourish our present hunger. Hunger for us is mere inconvenience in food and entertainment. We watch reality TV shows that revel in the abundance of food and in the creativity of chefs and some of us pride ourselves of being foodies. The Bible writers know little affluence we enjoy. It was not uncommon for them to endure periods of drought or famine they could much more likely identify with the sufferers of modern-day famines, which are not so common, and certainly nothing that we really ever experience. The closest I think we might have come to something like that would have been the Depression days back in the 30s and a little touch of it in the 70s where there was a price freeze and stuff like that, but that was nothing in comparison to what we read in Scripture. And one person who uh, had gone an overseas visit actually to North Korea, says this, that in the field you can see people picking up loose grains of rice and kernels of corn, gleaning every scrap. Morsels of inexplicable fat or gristle are served as duck. He says, one evening I, was, I gave in and I tried a bowl of dog stew which at least tasted hearty and spicy, they wouldn't tell me, though, the breed. But then, I found that my appetite crucially diminished by the realization that I hadn't seen a domestic animal, not even the merest cat, in the whole time I was there. Do you get the point? Those domestic animals probably were served in restaurants and on the tables of the homes because of their desperation for food. The psalmist, among others, believed he is starved and dehydrated without God. One whose bones suck on his skin and expose his skeleton, whose listlessness fuels his despair who scours the ground for even a single grain of rice. The psalmist so desires to know God and His love. And here's what the nourishment metaphor is ironically transcended, that he says it better than life itself. 
which harks back to Psalm 63. Your steadfast love is better than life, so my lips will praise you. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. I will bless you as long as I live. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. He's obviously pursuing God. He knows that God is his hope. God is where he's going to get his full and final nourishment. Jesus describes himself, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger. He that believes on me shall never thirst. Jesus in John 4 says, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of life, well of water springing up to everlasting life, so that the person will never ever thirst again. So Jesus is described as bread. He's described as water so that the hungry will partake and the thirst will be quenched. The appetite will be satisfied and the hunger is over because they have reached what the goal would be and that is Christ. Where is Christ on the scale? If I was to ask you this question, on a scale of 1 to 10, how much do you love God? God says, I'm looking for a man that is after my own heart to be the king, to be the leader of my people. And all of you, in some way or another, are a leader. You're an example. You're an evangelist. You're a teacher. You're an admonisher. You're a counselor. Everyone from the youngest who's saved here to the oldest. Do you realize the treasure that you have in your heart? Do you realize the noble calling that God has brought you into that you are capacitated in a way that you have this to offer? It's not the pulpit preacher. I can be right in the pews with you. I'm listening to myself as well. We're all in this together. We all have different gifts for sure, no doubt about it. Nevertheless, we all are called upon to have an attitude like the psalmist, like David. A man after God's own heart. How did David become a man of God's own heart? Let's just give, me, give you a little bit of background about him. Do we realize that... Do you know who David's great-grandmother was? Who was David's great-grandmother? Ruth. Hmm. That's right. The book of Ruth ends with the mention of David being in the lineage of Ruth who married Boaz. Their child had Obed. Obed had Jesse. And Jesse had David. A godly heritage was something that David came in the line of. And I wonder if he thought about his great-grandmother who was a Moabite. Remember? She married into the Israelite family. Her husband died. And Naomi is going to go back to her homeland. And she tells her two daughter-in-laws, stay back. There's no sense you coming with me. I have no more children to offer to you as husbands for you in the future. And Ruth said, where you go, I will go. She followed. You know, a Moabite was to be excluded from the congregation according to Deuteronomy 23. 
And when Ruth gets into the land, she says, Why have I found grace in thine eyes that thou shouldest take knowledge of me, seeing I am but a stranger, a foreigner. I don't deserve to be a part of the Israelite fold, the chosen people of God, the family that God knew upon the earth. And yet, she was embraced because of the mighty man of wealth, Boaz, chose to marry her and bring her into the fold. This is the heritage that David grew up in. I wonder if he had been taught as a child about his past history, about Ruth and, and her descendants as well. Secondly, we read about early in David's life that he's cited as being with the sheep, the keeper of the sheep. He was a shepherd. He tells the story of how he protected the sheep. As you remember, the bear and the lion, he apprehended and devoured them. He, he beat them down so that he could protect his sheep. There's something going on in David's life as a shepherd. And as a shepherd, he would have been one that would have been out in the field frequently. Having his sheep around him must have been an awesome time for him to get to know his God. It's David who says, Blessed or happy is the man whose sins are forgiven and whose transgressions are covered. David then could inform us from that verse that he had a conversion experience. That his sins were gone as far as the east is from the west, never to be remembered again. And that's something we ought to be rejoicing about. That our sins are buried in the deepest sea. Yes, that's good enough for me. I shall live eternally. My sins are G-O-N-E gone. David says, happy is the man whose sins are forgiven. Are you happy about that? That your sins are gone, forgiven? They've been eliminated. They've been put away by the death and punishment that Christ endured on the cross for guilty sinners like you and I. It goes on to tell us about David too that he was a cunning musician, a sweet psalmist of Israel. As a young man, that was a trade or a profession that he took up. I don't think he was getting paid for that necessarily, but I think it was just something that he was drawn to. And there is something about music, I think we all agree. It's definitely one of the highlights of our coming together. It's so awesome. Thank you, John and Michael and... Mark Fuller and Denise and Michelle and Tammy and did I miss any? Mike Leo and Pat. I thank you because it's awesome to have us be brought into the presence of God with such high praises, with wonderful lyrics that are just in line with the Word of God. So our heart should overflow, that cup should overflow. That's what worship is. It's the outflow of the overflow of the heart. It's the highest expression to God that we can offer of gratitude, but not only that, but of the worthiness that God deserves to get from us. It's an awesome thing to come together to worship the Lord. Corporately, individually. God loves it. God loves it. He seeketh such to worship Him. David was an ideal man for the job. A man after God's own heart. David was one of eight boys. 
He was the youngest of them. It describes him as glowing with health, fine features, and a handsome countenance. I assume that his love of the Lord, and it does tell us that a man's wisdom causes his face to shine. When you get in touch with God, when you are a child of God and you know the Lord, that has a bearing on your life. It affects your countenance even, your person, your personality. You're changed into the image of God's dear Son, which is an amazing miracle of miracles. Now this expression, a man after God's own heart. What does that mean? There's two ways I think it can be taken. Does it mean to have a heart like God? Or was his, the other way was what? A man after God's own heart. To have a heart like God or to have a heart that goes after God? Liking God. I think both of them are valuable considerations of what it means to be like God. But probably primarily because David is introduced after Saul, Saul's flaws are highlighted. He was one that was disobedient, that did not follow the Lord, who broke His commandments, who was self-centered, who was a man of the flesh, who was the people's choice, whereas David's God's choice. And David has a character, unlike Saul's, that was very self-centered. David's life is God-centered. It's all about him and not about me. That's how it should be for each of us. David is a model, brothers and sisters, for us to follow. Paul says, be like me like I am like Christ. What better language could be used to to emulate a person than the one that's given to David? A man after God's own heart. That's what we want to be like. A man after, or a woman, or a boy, or a girl, young or old, after God's own heart. Again, I want to repeat the question. How much do you love God? How much do you love your parent? How much do you love your siblings? How much do you love your partner? Whatever. Uh, How much? I think that's probably evaluated, partly at least, on the kind of love that you receive from them. Is the kind of love that you're going to return and have for the one that's the lover of you as well. But why is it that we love God? What's your basis for loving God? And thirdly, when do you love God? Are we seasonal Christians? Uh, Do we praise Him when things are going well? Do we thank Him? Do we love Him? Do we give Him glory when things are going well for us in life? It's an easy time to do it. And I think sometimes we just think, well, that's how life, that's, that's what life is dishing to me. Not necessarily it's from God. But we think that it's just sort of circumstances of life and situations of life sort of bring me these personal satisfactions that I don't necessarily have to think about God in regards to them. When in reality, the Bible says He's the head over all things to the church. All things. That's why the songwriter said, count your blessings, number them 
one by one. The blessings of the Lord is what we have, nothing that we achieve on our own. So the question is, is your love for Him seasonal? In other words, when things are going well for you? 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, In everything, giving God thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Notice that. In everything, giving God thanks. Not for everything. I think the Psalms point that out. There are times when the psalmist is angry with God. Upset, disturbed, confused, wondering how can this be going on. We have legitimate grounds to feel like a psalmist does and to utter words to to God when we are in our times of frustration. And there are many of psalms that could point us in that direction that I think can be language borrowable by us. I think it's good for us. God would expect us to empty out the tank of our troubles and our frustrations and put them onto the Lord and say, Lord, I don't understand why this, why that. And maybe you will, maybe you won't get an answer. But nevertheless, we need to persevere in trials because perseverance brings patience and patience hope and hope makes not a shame. The psalmist said, excuse me, the, the songwriter put it this way, I love thee. Why do we love God? Why? How much do we love Him? Why do we love Him? When do we love Him? I love thee because thou first loved me and purchased my pardon on Calvary's tree. I love thee for wearing the crown on thy brow. If ever I love thee, Lord Jesus, tis now. I love thee in life. I will love thee in death. I'll praise thee as long as thou lendest me breath. And say when the death do lies cold on my brow, if ever I love thee, tis Jesus, tis now. Paul says the love of Christ constrains us. When you think of the magnitude of God's love for you, God so loved, let me singleize this, singularize this, God so loved you that He gave His only begotten Son. Man, that should knock us on our heels. That should set us back like, wow! God so loved me that He gave His only Son. We should be shouting for joy. Hallelujah! If, that, if that's not something to dance about, I don't know what is. We should be thrilled about the fact that the Son of God bore my sins in His own body on the tree. Thank You, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank You, Lord, for making me whole. Thank You, Lord, for giving to me Thy great salvation, so rich and so full. Praise the Lord that we have that love. The love of Christ constrains me. As I think of the love that He has for me, I want to return that love to Him. Now, David did not have the same degree of comprehension we are entitled to have as New Testament believers, right? We have far more light. Well, I shouldn't say far, far, but we, we have further light than David did about the Gospel doctrine. What we know, if David knew, and of course he did to at least a, a large degree, we have seen the end of the story. We have seen who that 
ram was that was caught in the thickets by the horns that took the place of Isaac on the altar. We have seen pictures over and over again. Who's the one? What is that all about? The serpent lifted up on the pole that if anyone looks, looks, they'll live. That's about the Lord Jesus. They didn't know that in entirety in the Old Testament. But now as New Testament believers, we, we can look back and say, there's the Lamb of God who died in my place, lifted up was He to die, it is finished was His cry, now in heaven exalted high, hallelujah, what a say. Can you imagine if David had that song in his shepherd's bag that he could pull out and say, Lord, I want to sing this song to you. We have an elite mass of songs that we can sing that reach to the very highest pinnacle of the love of God and the truth of God that have ever been known to man. We are indeed a privileged people. I wonder how many of us take advantage of this. I wonder how much I love God. I'm challenged today. Uh, Psalm 63, uh, Psalm, Psalm, throughout the Psalms, uh, if, you, if you're tempted to read it, praise the Lord. Read the book of Psalms. That would be very wonderful. Along with other readings of the, new, of the Bible, please do so. And I think you'll feel the same thing. And I would say the thing that convicted me the most is because we have so many luxuries in life, we can't enter into, and it's not easy, and I'm not saying we, you know, that we should place a heavy guilt trip on ourselves because I'm born in America, because my parents, you know, provided, like Dave said, him with everything he wanted, and some of us may have been brought up in homes like that. I was blessed that way. My father made a decent income. He let me, he bought me my first car, $400. I remember 67 Special Buick was pretty cool. I broke it down in about a, a month of, by, by my racketing driving, but uh, I had a lot of the luxuries of, of, of that n- people would never have any idea about in other countries. My father had a restaurant. I could go in and eat three meals a day and have three meals in one meal because I was always so hungry and the food was always so good. So, I mean, I was spoiled, you could say. And there are ones that are far more spoiled than I ever was spoiled. But I think our American spoilage, if I can use that terminology, sort of puts us at a distance from the scriptures. So how do we get closer to that? Well, I don't know that we want to, you know, just empty our bank accounts uh, and just, you know, send them off to missionaries and come up with about $2 in our bank account. I'm not sure we want to sell our house and give it to a, a, a mission organization. I mean, we could. I mean, possibly. I'm not saying that you might not be led to do that. But I don't think that's what it's going to require or God would require for us to get into a state like a psalmist would who says that he was starving for God. Thirsting for God, hungering for God, wanting God to be as intimate as possible in his life. This is not something that I can force down your throat. You know, if it doesn't come from the Holy Spirit, this message will come and go in your life. But if you can leave here with some conviction and say, Lord, I have been in the far country. I have been spending my life on things that are worthless. Because as the, as the line says, "'Tis only one life will soon be passed, and it's only what's done for Christ will last." I can't tell you how to lay hold on heaven in some kind of a a, a model fashion, or I can't provide you a, a a handbook on how to do that. You've got the book, 
You've got Christ. You've got the Spirit of God within you. You have your Heavenly Father that you can address. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, a mighty God that we can draw near to. The happiest people are the ones that know their God the best. The psalmist knew God well. Didn't mean life went well. Didn't mean they were smiling all the time either. There are lots of tears, lots of hardships, lot of disappointments. But underneath the surface of all of this, there was a spirit of recognition of who God was and how I want to have that thirst quenched and hunger satisfied by Thee, O God. May we be motivated to, like David, be a man or a woman after God's own heart. Let's close in prayer. Lord, the psalmist has convicted us, Lord, that uh, your loving kindness is not better than life, we think. But Lord, he says it is. And Lord, might we be encouraged to recognize you more and more each and every day, more and more minutes of the day, more hours of the day, that, Lord, we would not so easily drift away from You, O God, because of the attractions that we see all around us, Lord. And some of them, Lord, You know, are unavoidable for us. And they are distractions that we have to live with. But, Lord, we pray that somehow we would be able to lift up our heads like Nebuchadnezzar in the wilderness and see that the heavens do rule. That, Lord, we would have a spirit that would follow hot after Thee. That we would cleave to Thee. That we would run after Thee. That we would draw near to Thee. As the hymn writer says, Draw me nearer, nearer, blessed Lord, to the cross where Thou hast died. And, Lord, we pray that we would be drawn closer to You. And we know that if we get to the cross afresh and see what the price was paid for the penalty of our sins and who it was that was hanging there on Calvary, And that it was You, O Father, who was looking down upon Your beloved Son, punishing our sins upon Him, and the Holy Spirit leading You, Lord Jesus, to endure this final and full payment for us. O God, we cannot but give You thanks to the uttermost for Your love for us. Lord, teach us to love You more, to know You more, so that, Lord, we can give You the glory and honor that's due to Your name as we pray these things in Jesus' precious and worthy name. Amen.